the views expressed on TMI with Aldous Tyler are not necessarily those of WSUMFM, the University of Wisconsin in Madison, or the Board of Regents. Oh no, my friends, the views for the next hour are all mine. Welcome to TMI with Aldous Tyler for Friday, April 23rd, 2021. Well, former Minneapolis police officer, officially named Derek Chauvin, but who I have always been calling since I first heard about him, George Floyd's murderer, completely and officially earned my name for him on Tuesday afternoon. Guilty and all Three counts. Um, and I have to tell you, as someone who lived in Minneapolis for a couple of years, um, I was extremely grateful to hear that some measure of justice had been managed there because otherwise I wasn't certain how well that city was going to survive had the verdict not gone exactly as it did. Um, a sheriff's deputy led... Chauvin away in handcuffs um, after jurors convicted him of murdering George Floyd. It was a dramatic ending to a case that, you know, just had everybody's attention and became, of course, the latest flashpoint in this raging debate about police brutality against the black community. Now, you know, it's kind of funny because there really isn't any debate about it. If you look at the facts, um, the black community here in America has suffered so disproportionately and tremendously at the hands of the police. And we're not just talking about modern times, although, yes, that's where we're in right now, and that's certainly uh, completely relevant to that uh, feeling. No, no. I mean, I don't mean to get too particular about it, but the fact is, slavery only ended in America officially 150 years ago. And it was still, essentially, in many places in America, completely illegal to live as a black person, pretty much, um, until about 60 years ago with the Civil Rights Act. And again, since then, there have been more and more tactics used to create trouble, strife, and even death within the black community. But back to the serving of justice to George Floyd's murderer, I need to make sure you understand this conviction, which of course came almost a year after bystander video captured 
uh, the officer kneeling on Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes, was the first time in Minnesota history that a white police officer was convicted of murdering a black civilian. Now, jurors deliberated for about nine hours and 45 minutes over two days before finding Chauvin guilty of second-degree unintentional murder, quote-unquote, third-degree intentional murder, and second-degree manslaughter. So, I mean, he got boiled on all counts. Now, George Floyd's murderer, dressed in shirt and tie and gray suit, glanced around the courtroom as the verdicts were read. He was immediately handcuffed, click, and escorted out of the courtroom by Hennepin County Sheriff's deputies when his bail was revoked. He wore the blue surgical face mask as mandated by the court for COVID-19 safety and gave a nod to his attorney, Eric Nelson, as he was let out the back door. He was transferred to the Minnesota Department of Corrections and booked just before 5 p.m. into the state prison at Oak Park Heights while he awaits sentencing. As news of these verdicts, guilty on all counts, um, social media sites reposted the Minneapolis Police Department's initial report that Floyd died of a medical event at the scene, an assertion that might never have been contradicted so forcefully if it were not for a teenage girl named Darnella Frazier walking by and recording Floyd's death May, uh, on May 25th of 2020 on her cell phone and posting it for the entire world to see. Fraser, who was 17 at the time, posted on Facebook after the verdict, I just cried so hard. This last hour, my heart was beating so fast. I was so anxious, anxiety busting through the roof. But to know guilty on all three charges, thank you, God, thank you. George Floyd, we did it. Justice has been served. Now, the jury's decision ended a fraught six-week trial, six weeks, that left many community members fearing a possible acquittal and law enforcement officials braced for massive clashes with angry protesters. Why would they think that was the likely outcome? Again, let's make sure we're clear on this. This is the first time in Minnesota history that a white police officer was convicted of murdering a black man. Was this the first time it happened? Oh, no. No, 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 no. But if not for the um, sharing of the video by Darnella Fraser, this probably would have been yet another of the many times police officers in Minnesota overstepped and used deadly force when it was completely unnecessary and used deadly force when it was completely sadistic to do so, just like George Floyd's murderer did. And it would have gone off scot-free. And the fact that the trial took six weeks, six weeks did not comfort anybody. Because anybody who has seen Darnella's video of George Floyd's murder at the hands of Derek Chauvin, well, the niece specifically, Anyone who's seen that video knew from the moment they finished watching that the police officer had murdered George Floyd. 
There's just no two ways about it. George Floyd's murderer shouldn't have taken six weeks to come to the triple guilty verdict. Shouldn't have taken nearly that much. And that's what had everybody on edge. Because all throughout Minnesota's history, it's never happened before that there had been a single conviction of a police officer, white police officer, murdering a black man. So, of course, of course, law enforcement officers were bracing for massive clashes with angry protesters. Of course, the community members were were fearing a possible acquittal. It's what had happened every single time until then. Now, the verdicts, when they were read aloud just after 4 p.m., this is all central time, and uh, streamed live around the world, prompted immediate celebrations in the plaza outside the courthouse in downtown Minneapolis, which until then had hosted somber prayer sessions and vociferous rallies calling for justice. Before George Floyd's murderer was taken away, Hennepin County District Judge Peter Cahill individually polled each juror, each of whom confirmed their verdict as correctly read. In other words, he went through and made sure, hey, none of you were bullied into this, right? Ain't not a single one of you disagreeing with this. This is a unanimous verdict, right? On all three counts. He thanked them as a group then. He said, I have to thank you on behalf of the people of the state of Minnesota, not only for jury service, but for heavy duty jury service. Ah, Okay. It certainly was a weighty matter, but it was only nine hours over two days. I mean, come on, there's been (laughs) wait longer jury duties, but you know what? I'll step back from that and say probably in the history of Perhaps even America, not a more important one. And I mean that. Had George Floyd's murderer been acquitted, I don't even, I I don't think I would be able to speak with anything close to the level of confidence I have right now that things are going to start getting better. In fact, had the acquittal happened, I think right now I'd be telling you all about how major cities throughout America were being torn apart by rioting. And when I say the word rioting, please allow me to uh, restate. I'm talking about rightful, justified protest. That just happens to be violent because violence is going to be the only thing that gets people's attention, it seems sometimes. Indeed, the violence of George Floyd's murderer is what got the attention of these jurors. The jurors stared at Judge Cahill until they were called on, remaining still and quiet, displaying no noticeable emotional reactions during the brief proceeding. Um, Attorney General Keith Ellison, whose office oversaw Chauvin's prosecution, summed up the case simply. George Floyd mattered. He saluted the bouquet of humanity that attempted to intervene and recorded Floyd's final moments. Ellison said at a news conference with members of his legal team, they don't know George Floyd. They didn't know he had a beautiful family. They didn't know that he was a proud father or had people in his life who loved him. They stopped and they raised their voices because they knew what they were seeing was wrong. They didn't need to be medical or 
use of force experts, they knew it was wrong. And they were right. Prosecutor Jerry Blackwell followed, saying, No verdict can bring George Perry Floyd back to us. But this verdict does give a message to his family that his life mattered, that all of our lives matter, and that's important. Nelson left the courtroom without comment, did not respond to charges, or messages, I should say, pardon me. Benjamin Crump, an attorney for the Floyd family, issued a prepared statement in addition to holding a news conference with the family. Painfully earned justice has arrived for George Floyd's family and the community here in Minneapolis, but today's verdict goes far beyond this city and has significant implications for the country and even the world, the statement said. Justice for Black America is justice for all of America. This case is a turning point in American history for accountability of law enforcement and sends a clear message we hope is heard clearly in every city and every state. One of George Floyd's younger brothers, Philanish Floyd, clasped his hands over his face as the verdicts were read, according to a reporter who was present. His hands shook as Judge Cahill read the first guilty verdict concerning the second-degree murder count. He nodded after the final guilty verdict on manslaughter was read. Soon he was weeping and hugging all four prosecutors in the courtroom, Ellison, Blackwell, Matthew Frank, Steve Schlechter, who wiped away tears from his reddened eyes. Phyllis Floyd told a reporter afterward, I was just praying they would find him guilty. As an African-American, we usually never get justice. In a statement, Minneapolis Police Chief Medaria Arandando thanked the jurors as well as members of the police department during a difficult and challenging year. The statement said, We recognize that our community is hurting and hearts are heavy with many emotions. However, I have hope. The community that I was born and raised in and that we serve is resilient and together, and we can find our moment to begin to heal. I'm going to pause for a second here and make sure to note this. Any calls for healing and unity that skip the part about accountability and consequences have completely missed how things work. There is a process. Once a wrong is done, there has to be accountability and consequences before any healing is going to be able to truly work. So so right now, yes. We've had accountability. And with the sentencing coming soon, we'll find out the exact consequences. So yes, it's quite possible that some healing from the murder of George Floyd may be possible to begin now. The Police Officers Federation of Minneapolis, the police union, issued a statement telling residents of the city that the Federation stands with you and not against you. Well, you'll have to prove that. They said, There are no winners in this case, 
and we respect the jury's decision. We need the political pandering to stop and the race baiting of elected officials to stop. In addition, we need to stop the divisive comments. We all need to do better to create a Minneapolis we all love. Hang on a minute. Look, you idiots, you just got handed your asses in court over this thing, over an officer you backed plenty of times over the past year, over an officer you were like, well, you know, and over an action where you're like, it's hard to do things out in the streets. You know, we deal with with these drugged up people and they're violent and blah, blah, blah. This is your job, cops. You chose this work. You either do it and do it competently or go do something else where you do less harm. Go do something else where you're not murdering people. Go do something else where you're not tearing apart the black community of America. Quit your bitching. That is not going to help heal. This statement, this statement from the police union is not helpful. And an exact example of them basically saying, well, we hang on. As a matter of fact, again, they say there are no winners in this case. Wrong. We respect the jury's decision. That's them going, well, we we gotta we can't fight it. Damn. We got owned. But you know what? They resent it. They clearly resent it. <sighs> All right, maybe I'm feeling a little less optimistic reading that. The fact is is that there's not going to be any healing unless the police take responsibility for being held accountable and for there being consequences. Calling it race baiting? How dare they? How dare Calling it pandering? How dare they? To actually respect the feelings of the black community when one of theirs was brutally and sadistically murdered? How dare they call that pandering? How dare they call it race baiting? When not a single white police officer has ever been convicted of murder in the state of Minnesota, how dare they say that somehow this was all blown out of proportion? Oh. Sorry, let me chill out for a second. Got to keep my speech radio uh, safe, right? Now, while this is the first time a white police officer was convicted of murdering a black man. Uh, this is the second time a Minnesota police officer was convicted of killing a civilian on the job. But it is also still the first time an officer in Minnesota has been convicted of second degree murder. The highest murder count prosecutors can file without convening a grand jury to review evidence. The jury, by the way, had six people of color. That's uh, two multiracial women, three black men, and a black woman, and six white jurors. They began deliberating deliberating around 4 p.m. on Monday after hearing unusually long closing arguments from the prosecution and defense that totaled almost six hours. They signed their verdicts 1.45 p.m. on Tuesday. They were asked to decide between the prosecution's claims that 
George Floyd's murderer used excessive force when he knelt on Floyd's neck for about nine and a half minutes. And the defense's argument that Chauvin was following his training when he arrested an unruly Floyd, and that Floyd died of a cardiac arrest resulting from drug use, pre-existing heart disease, and clogged arteries. You know, here's the deal. You can have pre-existing heart disease. You can have clogged arteries. You could even be a drug user. But you know what? You might still live the day if you don't have an officer kneeling on the back of your neck for almost 10 minutes. That might make a difference. And if that is training that the police are following, that just proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that officers are needlessly killing people, that they're trained to kill when they don't need to. At a date later on here, Judge Cahill will decide whether there were aggravating factors that could merit a prison term above sentencing guidelines. Prosecutors previously said there were five aggravating factors that should compel an even stiffer sentence, in indicating that uh, Floyd was particularly vulnerable and was treated with particular cruelty. Second-degree unintentional murder is punishable by up to 40 years in prison. Third-degree murder can get you up to 25 years. However, Minnesota sentencing guidelines call for identical presumptive prison terms in both counts, starting at 12 and a half years for someone with no criminal history. Second-degree manslaughter is punishable by up to 10 years in prison and or a fine of $20,000. The court carries a presumptive sentence of four years for someone with no criminal history. So, 12 and a half, 12 and a half, and four. That's uh, 29 years is what Chauvin is likely facing for someone with no criminal history. God. And you know, that's only because he was a cop. I'm sure that's the only reason he avoided no criminal, avoided having a criminal history. Now he'll be sentenced on the highest charge at least. Um, and if judge Cahill finds aggravating factors and applies them to sentencing, Chauvin could receive, oh, okay, pardon me. You know, I was saying 29 uh, years as adding up the minimums, but apparently he's going to be sentenced on the highest charge and said that Cahill will be um, looking for aggravating factors. If he applies them to sentencing, Chauvin would receive a maximum of 30 years in prison, but without those factors, he would receive 15 years maximum. Chauvin was the fourth officer tried in Minnesota for killing a civilian on the job in the last four years. And let's be clear, police have immunity no matter what skin color you are when it comes to this stuff. There's only been one other officer in Minnesota history convicted of killing a civilian, and that wasn't second-degree murder. They didn't get that. And Chauvin's the only one ever to be convicted of killing a black man. Um, for example, former St. Anthony police officer Yoranamo Yanez was acquitted in 2017 for fatally shooting Philando Castile. Remember that? During a traffic stop. Former Minneapolis police officer Mohamed Noor was convicted in 2019 of third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter when fatally shooting uh, Rustic Diamond, or Diamond, pardon me, while responding to her 911 uh, call about a possible sexual assault in an alley. 
Washington County Sheriff's Deputy Brian Crook was acquitted last year for fatally shooting Benjamin Evans, who was intoxicated, suicidal, and had a gun, but had not threatened to harm any officers or anything. Now, three other officers at the scene of the arrest and murder of George Floyd, uh, J. Alexander Kooning, Thomas Lane, and uh, Tao Thao, faced trial on August 23rd on charges of aiding and abetting second-degree murder and manslaughter. All three who were also fired are currently out on bond. Again, hopefully justice will come for them as well. And I'm truly hoping that we're going to see significant sentencing. 15 years, while notable, I don't know if that was going to be enough. I'm hoping that the judge can find the uh, aggravating factors sufficient for at least a 30-year uh, sentence for George Floyd's murderer. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back. See 
we all agree So we lock up the killer instinct And throw away the key with Aldous Tyler. It's been quite the year this past year for uh, protests and indeed quite a year for finding out exactly how police are going to respond and handle them. After all, if you've got a protest where you're protesting for a right-wing cause and uh, even have guns sitting right there in your, you know, cradled in your arms or otherwise present, um, for example, surrounding the state capital of the state of Michigan. Um, the police generally just leave you alone. Hell, you can wander the halls even. It's amazing, right? But on the other hand, if you have a peaceful protest, um, one that is saying Black Lives Matter, more often than not, the police are going to engage you and essentially turn it violent. This is what has been found specifically by Sharon Zhang of Truth Out in a piece published on April 19th, 2021, noted that cities are dropping most charges against Black Lives Matter protesters as the police fail to provide evidence. Right. So at least 90%, literally 9 out of 10 charges against Black Lives Matter protesters in a dozen jurisdictions across the country have been dropped, dismissed, or not filed. And that was according to an analysis by The Guardian. Such a high percentage suggests that the police may have been arresting people simply to suppress dissent. You know what? I'm going to go further than that. It doesn't just suggest it. It shows it. Basically, if you were someone protesting for people to be treated like human beings, for black lives to matter, you were far more likely to get arrested than if you came out protesting, you know, a, politically for a right-wing cause, uh, protesting to, uh, you know, say that you don't want to wear masks, um, things like that. Now, just to give you an idea, in Houston and Los Angeles, two very far-flung districts from each other, The Guardian found that 93% of charges, 93%, were either dropped or never even filed. In some cities like Dallas and Philadelphia, that number rose to 95% of charges dropped or never prosecuted. Meanwhile, in San Francisco, 100% all of 127 cases related to peaceful protesting were dropped. Now, this is an extremely high percentage of protest-related charges that are ultimately being dropped or dismissed. It's really clear. The police have been using arrests as a tactic to prove that the protests were unruly and unlawful. So, here's the thing. Political commentators from both sides of the aisle if you will, disparaged Black Lives Matter for 
basically as as they were just like, oh my goodness, look at all these. They're spinning it saying, look how unlawful protesters are. Look at all the evidence of all these arrests that have been made. These are terrible protests. These guys are totally off the rails, unlawful. And then when it comes right down to it, there's no evidence. None. For nine out of ten or more of these charges, no evidence. Meanwhile, not only were media outlets keeping tallies of arrests from the protests, um, by arresting people and racking up charges, even if now they've been shown to be baseless, became a way for police to justify their officers' violent and deadly behavior. Um, Tyler Crawford, director of mass defense at the National Lawyers Guild, told The Guardian, what they try to do is spin it and say, look at how unlawful protesters are. Look at all these arrests. Then they hope people will stop paying attention after 6, 10, 12 months when the prosecutors say, hey, we've got to drop these charges. These people should have been arrested. Arrests at the Black Lives Matter protests helped fuel a false version of events that was being pushed by people like former President Donald Trump, for example. Trump painted protesters, not police, as violent and called for law and order. And that was something that the right latched onto during the presidential election. Now, even though activists across the country pointed out last year that it was the police who initiated violence at most protests, the right wing still has taken the opportunity to pass anti-protest bills aimed at punishing and suppressing demonstrators. You see, with bills like this, Suddenly, you don't need evidence of there being any wrongdoing at these protests. Being at the protest and protesting is the crime. That's dangerous. Now, the charges analyzed um, by The Guardian bolster the idea that protester suppression was the end goal. Though police sometimes used curfews as excuses to cruelly tear gas protesters and disperse crowds in 2020, officers rarely filed charges for low-level transgressions like curfew violations. Instead, officers would then file felony charges like assault and looting with no evidence, ultimately forcing the charges to be dropped or dismissed because violating curfew isn't the kind of charge you can go and point to the media and say, look, these guys are violent. They're terrible. We have to be violent in response. We have to tear gas them. They're they're being violent because, look, we've charged them. We've charged them for, uh, you know, looting and assault. So we have to use tear gas. No, they were just breaking curfew. In Detroit, where, again, 93% of charges have been dropped. One district court judge dismissed more than 100 cases because the police refused to provide basic evidence, like body camera footage. Perhaps more egregiously, most tickets issued by Detroit police were written by officers who were not even at the protests and thus could not have witnessed the alleged crimes. That's according to the National Lawyers Guild and Detroit Justice Center attorney Rubina Mustafa. Now, police often force these charges onto people. In many instances across the country, police kettled protesters, as it was called, by corralling demonstrators into a closed area and not allowing them to leave, and then charging them with refusing to comply with orders to leave or for violating curfew. 
The thousands of arrests and charges made during last year's protest served to fill out police departments' false narratives, even as they forced protesters to defy orders. The high proportion of charges being dropped is also a stark illustration of how left-wing protesters are punished or face the threat of punishment much more often, as I mentioned earlier, than right-wing protesters. An analysis of protests from last year found that the police are three times more likely to use force against left-wing protesters than right-wing ones. There's evidence that protest suppression, especially against left-wing protesters in the U.S. and internationally, is getting worse. A recent letter filed by 400 leading experts shows that people demonstrating for the climate movement, for instance, are being criminalized for protesting. Meanwhile, state legislators, largely Republicans, are filing a stunning number of anti-protest laws. Some bills criminalize protesting in what appears to be a stark infringement of First Amendment rights to assembly and freedom of speech that the right wing pretends to revere. Others propose legal protection for people who run over protesters with their vehicles or shoot them. Right, legal, prote uh, legal protection for people hunting protesters. That's got to stop. And it's got to stop now. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back. Tell you 
Tyler. So this past Tuesday here this week, 420, means something to some people that it doesn't necessarily mean to others. But touching on that meaning, Governor Evers has pushed legal cannabis and justice reform as a Badger State investment, or so reports Isaiah Holmes in an article at the Wisconsin Examiner. Um, Cannabis legalization and other criminal justice reform strategies took center stage in Governor Tony Evers' live stream discussion of his Badger bounce back plan. The governor said during the event, this isn't my budget, it's your budget. Our justice system has put a strain on our state, on our communities, and on our families for far too long. Over 200 people were listening to the address through a Zoom chat, though many more likely saw it on YouTube. While some attendees were from organizations like MICA, a multi-ethnic interfaith organization, others were simply concerned residents. Once given an opportunity to share comments, many brought up cannabis legalization. Bringing either statistics or personal stories to the table, they questioned the point of the continued prohibition. Others touched on the issue of not only incarcerated youth, but young people remaining underserved in communities because of a lack of mental health treatment. Francis Zabrowski, a volunteer chaplain at the Milwaukee Secure Detention Facility, or MSDF, said, I've heard so many stories, both men and women, who are stuck in these jails, and yet have tremendous potential. 
So I would like to take the point of view of how to best use taxpayers' money, and as many said already, invest in humanity. During the address, Governor Evers admitted, we've got a lot to change. The Badger Bounce Back Plan outlines several policy shifts which Evers said he hopes will begin to remedy some of that strain. Those changes include expanding the Department of Corrections' earned release program, community alternatives to incarceration, and revocation and legalizing cannabis. Evers said, in addition to working to correct the disproportionate impact of marijuana enforcement on communities of color within the justice system, we're also proposing using about $80 million in new tax revenue generated by legalization to be reinvested in communities through the Community Reinvestment Fund. Now, the 2021-23 budget outlines bold plans to support infrastructure, transportation, education, and other areas which have been neglected in the state. Ever said, we can't be doing things the same way we've always done them because, frankly, to paraphrase something a constituent said at our listening sessions, the system isn't serving the people, it isn't serving the victims, it isn't serving public safety, and it isn't serving the future success of our state. When the budget was announced, the governor noted that legal recreational cannabis could become a $165 million industry for the state. Not quite up to the dairy uh, industry levels, but not bad. While Wisconsin's GOP legislative leaders have already signaled they won't budge on cannabis prohibition, including confirmation Thursday by Majority Leader Devin Lemeho that there are not enough votes in the state Senate, Cannabis reform has become more of a bipartisan issue with Republican state representatives, including their own, or sorry, introducing their own proposals to legalize medical cannabis or lower existing fines, at least. Now, local municipalities from Appleton to Milwaukee have successfully passed ordinances to lower fines for cannabis possession, and in Madison, cannabis is essentially decriminalized. Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, who also participated in Wednesday's event, said, It just makes sense for us to take this step. There's no reason why we shouldn't join the other 17 states that have legalized recreational marijuana. And not only are we continuing to lock people up for something that many people in other states not only do freely, but for the same business arrangement that they have made people millionaires virtually overnight across this country. It's a waste of money. It's a waste of time. And it's completely unjust. Now, beyond simply legalizing, the Bounce Back Plan also aims to aid people who've had past cannabis-related convictions. This is crucial. Barnes noted that Evers has issued more than 150 pardons, and the Department of Corrections has expanded the earned release program. Evers said he also wants to modify criminal penalties so that people previously convicted of or still serving time for marijuana-related crimes can have their sentences repealed or reduced to nonviolent minor offenses. Major, major things when you're looking for jobs and your um, employers C-cap you and discover, oh my gosh, he's got a criminal record. Well, let's, let's try to expunge those. This is, it's really crazy. You know, these shouldn't be lasting Mars that prevent you from being employable. 
By investing in community-based alternatives to incarceration, the Evers administration also hopes to overhaul Wisconsin's juvenile criminal justice system. The youth prisons of Lincoln Hills and Copper Lake have been controversial for years. As part of a 2017 lawsuit, a federal judge ordered the Department of Corrections to make urgent changes to the facilities uh, and their way they operate, especially around the use of pepper spray, solitary confinement, and other questionable tactics at youth prisons. Although recent reports show some of these conditions have improved, the youth facilities still lack overall structured programming and youth are still being detained several hours from home and isolation made worse by restrictions due to COVID-19, of course. The issue was brought up by Milwaukee County Supervisor Ryan Clancy during a town event in late February where Clancy asked the Department of Corrections Secretary Kevin Carr when he'd be allowed to visit the facility. Carr answered, uh, when it's appropriate. Uh-huh. Part of the logic in closing the facilities has always been to move the youth closer to home, where they can prepare to re-enter the community. However, funding alternative facilities was a legislative battle even before the pandemic. Exactly where the new facilities could be built and in what context remains a point of debate, both at the local and state level. You have plenty of these NIMBY, that's not in my backyard, folks, on the local level. And, of course, on the state level, they're like, well, we shouldn't be spending more people, more money on, on these criminal people, these young criminals. <sighs> I don't understand where politicians' heads are at sometimes. No one is a criminal. They are people who have broken the law and who, given the chance to get better, often can, if they're given the chance. <sighs> anyway, Evers pointed out that his administration's plan includes training to make sure that kids are being best served by our youth justice agencies with training and understanding of adolescent brain development, best practices for engaging kids in approaching delinquency, and understanding the unique needs of girls and LGBTQ youth. And we're going to change the way that we sentence our youth to require the courts to truly consider youth's risk, treatment needs, and severity of the offense, said Evers. And as one of only three states that hasn't done this already, we're going to return 17-year-olds to the juvenile system because our system should be about both accountability and opportunity for treatment and rehabilitation for kids to get on the right track with the right support. So this budget's now in the Joint Finance Committee, where Republicans have vowed to toss it out, start all over, labeling Evers' ideas as too liberal. Evers encouraged all Wisconsinites to contact their local representatives and, if they support the governor's budget, tell them why. Evers said, we're going to do better for our kids by truly overhauling the system, by focusing on evidence-based solutions and a community-based approach to facilities so that we can keep our kids closer to home. Folks, there's no true path forward for our state without justice reform. It's time to start investing in people, not prisons. That goes for youth prisons and for cannabis reform. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down the rabbit hole. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. Yes. On WSUM 91.7 FM in Madison. Hallelujah. You're my savior, man. The only person of Jesus Christ. 
It's your cure for the common media. Airing every Friday at 5 p.m. Central. Podcasting every Monday evening. Hey, Mikey, I think he likes it. Want some more? Oh, yes. Check out TMI, TMI, TMI TMI.com for podcasts and all things TMI. I know Kung Fu. Show me. And we're back, TMI, with Aldous Tyler. So, some final thoughts before we uh, leave for the day. I can't help but note that we are experiencing another epidemic of gun violence. The moment lockdowns started being lifted, guess what started coming back? Mass shootings. You know, when we were told we had to stay indoors and keep away from each other for each other's health and safety, no problem. We weren't shooting each other. But now, (laughs) as an example, at a FedEx facility in Indianapolis, a gunman came in with two rifles and shot the place up, killing people. Uh, Especially uh, notable were the fact that uh, several of them were um, Sikhs. That's spelled S-I-K-H-S, in case you're wondering. Um, I was a religious group, and uh, they were just devastated. You know, they're, they're not a large group to begin with. No matter where they are, the Sikhs aren't. They're very peaceful. Uh, they're pacifist by nature. And, uh, and yeah, to have so many of them just wiped out by a rogue gunman. But here's the worst part in a lot of ways. Police had seized the gunman's shotgun already. That's right. The police knew that this guy was a threat. Seized his weapon, the one that they knew he had at the time. And he was able to go after that and buy two rifles to go and commit the shooting and the murders that he committed at the FedEx facility in Indianapolis. He legally bought them. This wasn't, he didn't go some back street deal. No, he just went right to the gun store after he'd had his weapons confiscated and bought them. I'm not saying no one should have guns. I'm firmly saying there is no way this shooter should have been able to legally acquire more firearms after having had his taken for being a known danger. What in the hell? You know, and of course, all of the people who are so pro Second Amendment are, you know, oh, it's it's his right to have firearms. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but it's not his right to kill anybody with them. There is no right in the U.S. Constitution that gives you the right to kill another human being. Not one. OK, I don't care what your interpretation of the Second Amendment is, even especially if it's wrong, but I don't care what it is. You don't have the right to murder, period, period. And then, on top of that, these same people will go ahead and support officers who make the claim of, oh, well, we had to shoot uh, this person. We saw a gun. Even if, you know, maybe they didn't or they thought they saw a gun. So they go ahead and shoot and kill people. Officers don't have the right to kill people either. No, that should be a last, last, last resort. And then, hey, one last thought for you Second Amendment folks. If an officer can kill someone because they see that they have a gun, where is your Second Amendment right exactly? Think about that. 
All right, well, that's enough of that. Thank you for tuning in. And if you want to see the world for what it is, all you got to do is find that center within yourself. Remember what matters to you. Take a deep breath, close your eyes, let it out. And then when you're ready to see the world for what it is, all you are going to have to do is simply... Oh!